Our text tonight is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. I hope you all have a blessed evening. That's such a great Christian term, isn't it? And you see it like everywhere. I've always wondered what the product management team at the, uh, the tchotchke Christian stores, like how they come up with all of the slogans and the t-shirts and the posters, because you've seen them all, right? You've seen t-shirts that say blessed. Maybe you've even seen a sign as you walk in someone's home. This, this home is blessed. There's all these promotional products and gear that is letting, allows you to let the world know how much of a blessed life that you really live. And I have been in some homes, and I've seen a plethora of signs declaring a plethora of blessings, and I've also never seen a Bible anywhere in some of those homes. Yet they all declare how blessed their life is, how blessed their home is. And those cute little plaques and those cute little tchotchkes are pretty much just that. They're cute. Or maybe you've seen it in an email signature from somebody at a church that says blessings, or have a blessed day, (laughs) or... My favorite is when anybody, especially in a Christian circle, responds to some life circumstance, we're just so blessed. Timmy got that B minus on the test and we really thought he was a D student and the good Lord has blessed us with a B minus. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. These families and these people, I, I hope are living a life of blessing and these, the things that God does provide for us, even Timmy's B minus can be a blessing. But what we're going to find out in our passage today, which is the first half of the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are actually one of my favorite parts of the Bible, is we're going to see that Jesus begins each of these statements with blessed are. And so this this idea of being blessed and blessing is obviously very important. So the question, of course, then comes, what does it mean to be blessed? Is it the t-shirts and the signs and the tchotchkes that are commonly sold, uh, declaring that material wealth and grades and our kids and their soccer program or whatnot are all the greatest blessing ever? Well, you you all know the answer is no, or else I wouldn't have used it as the example. So, knowing that it's no, let's take a look at what Jesus actually means and what this idea of blessing means. And our passage starts out with, and the continuation from last week is, these large crowds that that have been gathered around and are following Jesus. And Of course, like all big crowds, sometimes they have good intentions, and sometimes they don't have good intentions. But Jesus was of interest to a lot of people. He's healing, he's teaching, he's preaching, and people are starting to notice the word is spreading fast. But he's not really in crowd-building mode. That's not Jesus' M.O. He's not trying to build the next megachurch. Instead, he's doing the opposite. He's calling disciples to himself, but people are also following him. So he's calling people who will listen, who will learn, who will memorize what he has to say, who will teach, who will build God's kingdom. These are the people that he's calling. And so what he does is he goes up to the top of Mount, he sits down, and he calls his disciples to himself, and he starts to teach. Verses 1 and 2 again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
And what does he say? He says, blessed are. He used the words blessed. And this word is so interesting because we use it in our common vernacular all the time today. The Greek word is makarios, and it means to be fortunate, happy, and privileged. And so you can see why when we use it in our current culture, we talk about our blessed home and blessed for Timmy's grades, that idea of fortunate and, and happy, all those things apply. But that's not the exact context that Jesus is going to use it in with the words that are going to follow. He's going to use it in the context of fortunate, happy, and privileged. But what he's going to tell us that makes us fortunate, happy, and privileged is totally different than the context in which we use the word today. Verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Sorry. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is not what most people mean when they talk about the blessed life. None of these things are the things that we typically experience when we see somebody wearing a blessed t-shirt. Next time you see one, someone wearing that shirt, you should ask them, do you feel blessed because you're poor in spirit, meek, or you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And they will probably look at you like you're slightly a crazy person. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What he says to us is the people who are actually blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, those who are meek, and those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. None of these things seem to align culturally with what we expect blessings to look like. These all seem to be areas of weakness instead of areas of strength. So what gives? Well, we all know that part of the American dream is the pursuit of happiness, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we try to find that at Elitch's or on the internet or with a new gadget or a motorcycle or an airplane. The American pursuit of happiness is usually attached to things. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is telling us is that happiness and blessing joy comes from a good moral character. It doesn't come from the things in our lives. And so to really understand this, we need to dive into each one of these statements line by line and kind of dissect what it means for us. And so he starts the Beatitudes with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he, he starts right away and says, the people that are blessed are those that are poor in spirit. But what we have to be able to do is distinguish what he's talking about to understand what the blessing is. We have to distinguish the difference between character and personality. What Jesus is not telling us is that people with poor personalities are blessed. He's talking about personality traits. Just like we said a minute ago, these are character traits that Jesus is talking about. The, the poor in spirit is referring to the spirit of somebody's character. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit and character? Well, what I think it really boils down to, just in, a, in the Cliff Notes version, is that it boils down to the fact that we are not enough. And this really goes against my personal grain. I like to work, and I like to feel like I'm independent. I love stories of the self-made man. Our culture idolizes the self-made man. We love the good pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap stories. One of my favorite books is a book called Endurance about Ernst Shackleton, who in 1914, he was either 14 to 16 or 12 to 14, I think it was 14 to 16, got stranded on Antarctica 
with a whole bunch of guys and he got them all home safely after two years of being stranded on Antarctica. Nobody died. That is a great, like, self-made, independent, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, tough-guy kind of story. We have a ministry, I have a ministry, a men's ministry, that focuses on making men stronger, tougher, more biblical. So how does that align with poor in spirit? Can you imagine if I sent the email out next month and said, we're going to be doing next year's uh, whole study on how you're all poor in spirit. Guys would be like, I don't know if I'm going to show up for that year. But it would be a valuable one for them to show up. Because the reality is, we are all poor in spirit. Even the toughest, strongest, most fierce leader and warrior is still poor in spirit. What being poor in spirit means is that you acknowledge that no matter how hard you try, you actually can't do it all by yourself. Being poor in spirit shows us that we are in the deep need of God's grace in every single aspect of our lives. And I know this personally, vocationally, I've had a successful career. The Lord gave me gifts that allowed me to earn and provide and he gave me gifts that allowed me to earn and provide doing things I like doing, like flying planes and shooting guns. That's a pretty good way to earn and provide. And most of you know my story, and you know that the Lord really showed me how deep and poor in spirit I was, which is how I came to this place, to leave all of those things to come into a place that only God could have put us in, into ministry. That despite what I thought were my strengths and my accomplishments, the Lord came to my heart and said, no, you, you actually can't do this. And it's true. I'd been chasing my tail for decades. You know, work, earn, buy, show off, work, earn, buy, show off, work, earn, buy, show off, repeat. And then I enjoyed the social rewards of that as well, right? Especially when people are like, oh, we don't know how you do it. <laughs> You're such an inspiration. It was like the fuel of the fire of selfishness. It was pride. And that's what God broke down for me. He cut deep into my heart. He showed me that I was in, in such need of his grace, that my spirit was so poor without him, that all of the things that I thought were blessings, the house, and I had this really fast car, and this flashy lifestyle, that were really silly. Because without his grace, none of it mattered. Vanity, as the preacher would have said. God showed me that to enter his kingdom, I had to be aware that all of the earthly things and the apparent success and all of this stuff was actually something that came from him. That it was from him for me to use for him. And that without him, I'm nothing. I'm just a clump of talking cells that magically evolved into a bearded pastor. But being aware of him and standing before him and being in awe of him even with the worldly gifts and accomplishments, because of where God has placed me in, in the knowledge of how poor in spirit I am, I realize that without him, I'm still actually just nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a, a place of depression. It's a place of acknowledging that before God, I am spiritually poor. He is spiritually perfect, and I am not. So without him and without his grace... There is no hope that I can enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's why Jesus tells us that the poor of spirit, those that know they are in need of a savior, only they can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if you don't know that you need saving, what then? Nothing. 
So then, instead of being a place of depression, it actually becomes this place of great joy and blessing, right? I, I, I'm not weeping in my poorness, but I'm rejoicing in the fact that my spirit is poor and God has saved me. Which brings us beautifully into the fourth verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So how do we go from poor in spirit to mourning? How do these two things tie together? Well, it's not really the way we think of it. Usually, how do we think of it when we think about the word mourning? We think of it a few different ways. We think of maybe people mourning the loss of a family member or the loss of a relationship, right? We, we think of the interpersonal mourning, but then there's also another kind of mourning as well. The, the criminal who gets caught doing something they're not supposed to be doing, that person, when they get caught, is mourning. Many times that person is mourning the fact that they got caught, not the fact that they did something wrong. There's also a victim culture and a victim mentality that lives in our world. And people will mourn their status within that part of the world. And it's reinforced, especially in the online social media world. I haven't told you guys in a couple weeks. Get rid of social media. Um, but that same kind of mourning there too. Oh, I'm just so upset about something that took place on Facebook. So they can mourn their status as victims in the place of the world. So are these the people that Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Possibly, but also possibly not. Jesus is not saying that everybody who mourns is blessed. What Jesus is saying, it actually matters what you mourn about. And if you are mourning things that align with God's kingdom, then there's blessing. But if you're in that second group, mourning something you shouldn't have been doing, mourning the fact that you got caught, mourning the, <laughs> the fact that you ran your mouth on Twitter and then Twitter blocked you or, or some social media penalty, whatever. That's not a place to be blessed. Because the type of mourning that Jesus blesses is the type of mourning that takes place when we're actually mourning our sinfulness and our weakness. The mourning of where we sit poor in spirit. Ultimately, he blesses mourning that aligns with his kingdom values. And see, that's how it ties into that first beatitude, poor in spirit. If we realize where we are in poor in spirit, right? If, if we realize our total need and dependence on God, then we are going to rightly mourn when we are in sin and we're not following God's commands. That This sorrow and this mourning is what actually brings us to true repentance. It's not guilt and shame. We've been released from those things through Christ. But there should be mourning when we do the things we're not supposed to do. When we fail to adhere to God's word, we should mourn that. Because we're aware of where we're disconnecting and we're failing to follow and live the life that God has commanded us to live. We mourn because we want to do right in God's eyes. But we know that we can't do it without him, so he has to draw us in. It's the same reason we mourn when we look at the greater world and we see how sin and evil affects people, uh, people we know and people we don't know within the greater world. It is amazing. I get these little broadcasts about kind of critical incidents that take place in Colorado, fires and shootings and stabbings. I wake up every morning to four or five shootings in Denver, every single morning. Not to mention the stuff that happens in the middle of the day. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. That is something we should be mourning. Thankfully, God wraps us up in his loving embrace. He reminds us of, of, his, of our status with him. And he says that we're not of the condemned, but we're those who are saved. Romans 8.1. There, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, our mourning is tied directly to our status as those who are poor in spirit. We mourn because we need God's grace. 
And then he gives us that grace and he comforts us. That's where our comfort comes from. If we're mourning the things we are supposed to be mourning, just like if we recognize our dependence on Jesus, then he's going to comfort us. And so understanding those two allows us to better understand the third, which is verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I cannot get through the Beatitudes without thinking of Monty Python's Life of Brian. If you have not seen Monty Python's Life of Brian, it's probably not quite kid-appropriate. I think it's okay for the teenagers. It's funny. It's an old movie. It's from the 70s. It's about a guy who's born, and he gets mistaken for Jesus. And so his whole life, his name's Brian, and his whole life are people mistaking Brian for Jesus. And there's a scene where they're at the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to use another one of the, ver- another one of the examples next week. So if you watch the movie within the week, you'll get both examples. But you know, the crowds are far distanced, and these are, these are the guys in the cheap seats. Brian comes from a very poor family at the, the very, very back end of the crowds. And you can hear bless, uh, Jesus up there saying, Blessed are the meek. And Brian's mother says, The meek? What did they ever do for us? <laughs> but what's funny about that is there's a lot of people that have that attitude right now. 40 years after that movie was made, it's amazing how, how on point those guys were so much earlier. Um, even on, on some of the transgendered issues, there's a whole thing about a, a guy that wants to be called Loretta and he wants to have babies and John Cleese looks at him and says, but you don't have a womb. They were way ahead of their time. But that's kind of how we think about it. Nobody here would be excited to wear a shirt. Maybe I should make some for the church that, that display our status of meekness. <laughs> but we should because we have to think about what it really means to be meek as a Christian. It does not mean a meek disposition. What it does mean is that meekness applies when we think about things like self-ambition and envy. Because a meek person is somebody that is humble and gentle. It's the person that Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy 2.24. I read those verses to you a couple weeks ago, but just this one verse. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Paul gives to his letter to Timothy these list of qualifications of people, and they highlight what meekness looks like. They are the characteristic of a meek person. Jesus was no pushover. He came with a sword. He built a whip. He threw over tables. He he disrupted the way things were. He was forceful. He was confrontational. He was truthful. But he was also meek. You see, meekness is the lack of the absence of self-assertion. It's about learning to use our strength for others and not just for ourselves. All of this keeps pointing away from selfishness. As we go through the Beatitudes, we go through Jesus' words over and over and over again, we're going to see that it's all pointing us away from selfishness and into service. Because if we really understand Jesus' gospel, and we're poor in spirit, and we mourn our sinfulness before God, that will lead us to to the place where self-assuredness, you could use the word pride, is no longer our problem. Because a meek person knows his place and station in life, and knows how to use it in the service of others. Not for himself, but all for God's glory. Think about the incredibly powerful CEO or executive. These people have incredible influence and power, and not just over their particular company. 
depending on the business and depending on their status in life, these people could have global economic impacts. I know this firsthand. I worked for some of the most influential and powerful people in the world. People whose decisions on a financial and an economic level change the course of millions of people's lives. They impact supply chains, they impact politics, uh, they impact greater economies. See, that's a place you really want a meek person. Because if your CEO or your leader or your pastor or your uh, leader of the house, your husband, uh, any of these people, if they lack meekness, then they're only doing the things they're doing to serve themselves. They grow and move their business to increase wealth. They increase their profits. They increase their prestige. Maybe it's in, in a, a church where the pastor doesn't have meekness and it's about more butts and seats and more staff members. And Garen and I were talking earlier. We, there's a church here that has a CFO. And when you go on their website, they say they're led by elders. There is no executive leadership listed on their website. There's no leadership that has a C-level starting on it, but they have a whole set of executive leadership. Is that church being led by meekness? But now think of it on the other side. Think if that person has a meek heart and a spirit of meekness. What's the difference? They start using their power and their influences and their finances to impact the world for God's kingdom. That's why God doesn't tell us that money and affluence are bad. He gives us a lot of warnings. Because with money and with affluence come all kinds of challenges for sin. But God doesn't tell us that those things are bad. But he says without those things, they lead to pride and selfishness. The powerful man must be meek. He must use his gifts for God's kingdom. And the same is true for us. We must be meek. We must know where our standing and station is before God, our king. And we must work for the advancement of his kingdom for his glory, not for our own. And that is why the meek inherit the earth. You see, when we're meek, we end up in this place of incredible appreciation. We know how fortunate we are to be provided with the things that God has given us. He's given us this beautiful world to have dominion over. This bird chirping right off my right, it's amazing. Families to lead, households to build, fruit to bear. But it has to be for His glory. He gives us these incredible gifts. And he gives us a place to participate in his creation for his glory. And that is what is incredible. And we see the flip side of this all the time. Politicians and CEOs that do things for selfish reasons. What happens? It always fails. People get hurt. Selfishness always ends up wounding people. It destroys, always, one way or another. It can be big or it can be small. But our selfishness always wounds somebody else. But that's not that way for the meek. The meek see the world through the eyes of the redeemed. And it's because of that that they inherit the gifts that God has given them. That's why the meek live in joy. Our meekness is a blessing. And so these, these beatitudes, poor in spirit, mournful and meek, they bring us to the fourth. And, and the fourth is the result and the consequence of the first three. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this is what ties them all together. It says if we're, if we're poor in spirit and sinful, we know that, and we know our dependence on God, and then if we mourn over it and we live meek lives, the, the, the outcome of that is God is going to make us hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
and then he's also going to help us attain it. This, this hunger is a soul hunger. It is the deepest hunger that we can experience. I have a friend. He's one of the most wonderful men in the world. His name's Thad Barnum. He's a bishop in the ACNA. I love Thad. Just, he's such a wonderful man. But he describes this moment as the time when you knew that you knew that you knew. So he says, there's a time when you know Jesus. You know him. But there's also a time where you know that you know that you know that you know Jesus. That's what this part is here. And, and he even said, when we were at a, a big pastor's retreat, he said, there's a lot of pastors that know Jesus that don't know that they know that they know Jesus. <laughs> and I know that was the case for me. I knew that I knew that I knew Jesus a lot later after than I knew Jesus. What he means is that there's a point where we believe in him, but then there's a deeper moment where it's, he is so deep in your heart, where, where your heart is cut so deep for God that you yearn for him. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is the hunger that yearns for the life-changing effects of God's word. It's not a blessed life of prosperity gospel. Big house, mo' money. Biggie Small said it best, though. You all know that, right? Mo' money, mo' problems. It's a hard reference for everybody under about 40. It is true. But the, the, the life that is hungering and thirsting for the Lord is a life that acknowledges that without Christ, I'm actually nothing. And it's, what, it's, it's the life, the, the outcropping of that life is what Paul says in Philippians 4.13. Those that hunger and thirst, they live this life. What Paul says, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because when you're hungering and you're thirsting for the Lord and his righteousness, you realize that you can do everything, no matter what life throws at you. And everybody here, I know all your stories. Life has thrown all of you a whole bunch of stuff. Life threw Paul a whole bunch of things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because the life without God is meaningless and vain. Talked about that all through Ecclesiastes. And, that, and we can actually feel this, too, when we're hungering and thirsting for the Lord, right? So we don't want to live in that life that is without God, that's meaningless and vain. So we grow together and we study and we pray and we do these things and we start get living out what Jesus is talking in the Beatitudes. And, and we get that hunger and we get that thirst. And that's why you get that feeling when you haven't been to church when you haven't read the word, when you haven't heard it preached, you start to feel like there's that gap. I need to. I, I desire that. That's our hunger for him. We hunger for his wisdom. We hunger for his word. We desire God. We desire the grace and the peace and the joy that can only come from him. And we want more. He becomes the place of our satisfaction. That's what leads us to righteousness. And that is a word that is used in church a whole bunch. And it may not be particularly well understood. And righteousness manifests itself in different ways in Scripture. One way that it manifests itself is through personal righteousness. This is what leads us to kill sin and try to live like Jesus. We pray that God will continue to change and work in, work in us. We've, we've talked about this before. This is sanctification. It is the gradual process of becoming more Christ-like as we continue to advance in our faith, as we continue to grow deeper in our faith. There's also this thing called alien righteousness. This is what Christ bestows upon us when we believe in him. This is what justifies us before God. This is what removes the condemnation of our sin. We call this justification. 
sanctification, our growing in God. Justification is what Christ gives to us and, and, and washes us clean. And, and you can think of it in a legal term. He justifies us before the Lord. We, we are not guilty of the penalty of our sin. And then we have social righteousness, which is so much different than social justice, which is evil. Social righteousness is the bringing of society back to the way God designed it, under God's rule. This is that concept we talked about, theonomic principles, a couple weeks ago. But this is our active hand in changing the world, building God's kingdom, being peaceful, being generous, building the body, support, working in our communities to live out our values. Our hunger for righteousness must compel us to action for God's kingdom. It has to lead us to do something. I feel like I say that a lot because it's really important. We, we talked about last week or the week before that from James, you know, faith without works isn't faith. We're not saved by those works. That's your justification. Your faith in God takes care of that. But something has to come out of it. It has to bear some fruit somewhere has to bear fruit in your families, your communities, the world at large, the way that you, you change in your interactions, the way that you love your enemies. Kristen and I had two really wonderful opportunities in the last two days to really exercise the opportunity to love our enemies, to extend social righteousness. We really didn't want to, but it's so important because we have to live our values in this house, whether you guys are here or not, Outside of this house, in the church, it has to be the same everywhere that we go. And something I read, and I thought it was really good, is we should never just be satisfied with a small taste of righteousness. And sometimes we get that. We get that little taste. I, I've had that happen at, like, retreats. You go to a retreat for a couple days, and it's really powerful. It's moving. And then, like, three weeks later, you're kind of back in the, the, the sample of life. And it doesn't minimize what happened at that retreat. But if... You can get satisfied with just that little taste of righteousness versus the yearning, the hunger, and the thirst to bring that righteousness into every aspect of your life. Because it only gets better. That's the beautiful thing about what, what Jesus is telling us in the Beatitudes and what he's telling us constantly through his words. Is that if our faith and our trust, if we're poor in spirit and we mourn and we're meek and we hunger and thirst, life gets really, really amazing. These should be the driving principles in our lives. And that's why I really love the Beatitudes. I can't remember if you were at the very, very, very beginning, but we studied, Kirk probably was there. We studied the Beatitudes like four years ago at the lion's den. And it was one of the first things I decided to study because I had no idea what I was supposed to lead all these men through. So I opened the Bible and I was like, what are verses that, are, that seem to be impactful and good? All of them, by the way. But I was like, oh, the Beatitudes. It was awesome. It's how we started, we started the lion's den. But if, if discipleship is working to be more like Christ, right? If it's, if it's to learn and to memorize and to act like him, we actually have to listen to his words really carefully. And his words here tell us what the blessed life looks like. And it looks a lot different than what the world tells us that it looks like. He tells us to acknowledge the poorness of our spirit, to acknowledge our utter dependency on him, to mourn our sinfulness, to be aware of its devastating effects on our life and the lives of others. He tells us to be meek, to remove self-assuredness, to, 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 to realize our dependence on him, 
to be generous in that space. But he doesn't tell us to give up our strength. He tells us we have to do all these things while still standing in the truth. But I promise you, if we do these things with prayer, and and, and we seek our Lord with an honest heart, acknowledging before him where we miss it. He already knows, by the way, like he's God. Repenting amongst each other, acknowledging our sin before one another, forgiving, turning away, building up barriers and walls, preventing us from doing it again. He will fill us with a hunger and thirst that only makes us desire him more. Then he will draw us even deeper and closer in, and then he will shape us even more closer to his image. And then what happens is we actually become satisfied because our righteousness is tied up in him and who we are in him. And that will cause us to go do work to change the world according to his will. We're agents of his kingdom. We build disciples in all the nations. We live out the word of God in all of our actions. This is significantly different than how most people think you live a blessed life. You still get to be joyful when your kid gets the, the B minus instead of the D. Hopefully it's an A on the test or work gives you a bonus. You should be thankful for that good fortune that God gave you. But that is not the source of your blessing. Those are wonderful things to rejoice in, but they are not the things that you want to stake your hope in. The new car and the new job, the better college, whatever the thing is, are not the things to stake your hope in. You can rejoice that God has provided for you, But then if it goes away, you can rejoice too, because God is still providing for you. The blessed life is the life in service of the Lord. But those things can only be blessed if they are in the appropriate service of him. That's why the blessed life is actually the content life. Paul talks a lot about contentment. He wrote about contentment from a Roman prison, not Club Med. I don't even think they got an hour outside. There was definitely no workout equipment. He was content. He could do all things through Christ who strengthened him, right? Because his identity and his blessing wasn't tied up in anything external. It was only tied up in the Lord. So if you live a blessed life, then you'll be confident that God has you exactly where you're supposed to be, serving him and his kingdom. This life is content, it's peaceful, And it is content and peaceful no matter what the world throws at you. It does not mean that there will not be hard times, because there will be. But there will not be hard times where you will be alone. Not only will you not be alone because of the body that is here that will love you and support you and carry you through whatever we need to love and support and carry you through. But if you're mourning the things you're supposed to mourn and you've acknowledged your status before the Lord. And you're you're trying to be meek and you hunger and thirst for him. He will be there alongside you the whole way. So as we wrap up, I want to call you to live a life as Christ's disciple. And I promise you, you will live a truly blessed one. One that will not only bless you, but it will bless your offspring and your offspring's offspring. It will help build a thousand generations of faithful Christians. We will continue to change the world. We will disciple all the nations and we will joyfully welcome the return of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the blessings that you provide to us. Lord, as we leave this space, 
I just ask for each and every one of us that you continue to cut deep into our hearts. Remind us of our, our poorness in spirit, our utter dependency on you. Remind us to mourn sin, to mourn our sin, to mourn the world's sin, to forgive, to repent, to reconcile. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you can continue helping us grow in meekness. We all need help growing in meekness, Lord. And Lord, I pray more than anything that we can all see the joy in having a deep hunger and a deep thirst for your righteousness. That we can be strong and truthful and generous and kind and humorous agents to change the world, to grow your kingdom, and to welcome in the return of Jesus. All this we pray in your mighty name. Amen.